With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites all with a single click. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. So right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time, because I really want you to try it for free just to see how easy it is. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. If you like audiobooks, then you need to check out today's sponsor, Audible. Audible has audiobooks from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, business information providers, and one guy named James Altucher. You can catch up on all the hot new books you've been meaning to read while on your daily commute with Audible. So just for listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash James to start your free trial. Go to audible.com slash James to start now. Today on the James Altucher Show. What am I most concerned about? I'm really, really concerned about the rise of superintelligence. And I join, in this instance, I join a very impressive crowd of Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, Bill Joy, a number of people that I think there's evidence to say are the great technological thinkers of our era. What's the switch that will flip that makes you actually worried? When we get to artificial intelligence at the superintelligence level, the degree of intelligence that we're describing here is impossible for us to really get our arms around. It's a big, big issue. So what's the flip of the switch? I think what we're talking about is when a machine gets so extraordinarily smart that it has a certain amount of self-awareness or sentience, and then it's concerned about survival. Someone said to me the other day, oh, well, but when will a machine have an original thought? And the answer is they already have had many original thoughts. Oh my gosh, I'm a little bit nervous. I've got mega spy R.P. Eddy on the podcast. Just wrote this. When's this book coming out? May 23rd. May 23rd. Warnings. Uh, basically, I'll describe it for, for a second. It's all of these things where we had massive warnings, big high stakes of world events like 9-11, Madoff, Fukushima, the financial crisis, pandemics, climate change, all these things where we've had 
major world catastrophes and somebody knew everything. So there was a warning. There was a legit warning that was communicated up the ranks. Nobody listened or a few people listened. Why did nobody listen? What catastrophes are going to happen in the future? How we can how we can start listening to the real, as you call them, Cassandras. Um, but you're the expert on this because you and Richard Clark, your co-author, because you're you've been on the ground, you've been in the trenches for all of these events. And in, two things, and this is really important. One is you're a mega spy, and I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> the other is totally by coincidence, you and I were on a plane uh, a year ago. I didn't know you. I didn't know you. Were, I didn't know you were going to write a book. And you started, uh, we started talking, you know, we were on a flight from California almost a year ago to the day, actually. It was like late May um, uh, 2016. And you were telling me this crazy shit about being a spy <laughs> and <laughs> all of these things. And I was, I think I don't, didn't let you sleep. Like I was asking you questions for like three straight hours. And by the way, I just want to say, you've lost a lot of weight since then. Ah, that's you're, the best news. You, you were eating, <laughs> I was wondering to myself, you were eating garbage like the entire, like every time the woman came by, would you like another of Ice this, cream. sir? You were just like, and then finally they had to like come in with the garbage bag and like pick up all the wrappers and bottles. But you were telling me all this stuff. So I want to get to the book. But first, I want to um, maybe describe a little bit. Oh, oh, one other thing I want to mention about your background. Right now, you run what I would almost call, and you could correct me, almost like a mercenary spy agency. <laughs> so, like, governments hire you to spy on other governments, except, of course, the U.S. Because I remember asking you, like, why was oil crashing? At the time, oil was crashing. And you were like, well, this government hired us. I can't say who. And we have people in this government's prime minister's office that's secretly on our payroll. And this is what happened between Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and Nigeria and the US. And you kind of broke it down. And you're right. And the other thing you were right on is, that, and again, this is a year ago, you called Trump. So hey, you, you, were, you gave this amazing definition of income inequality and basically said, that's why we have a Donald Trump right now and a Bernie Sanders. You said, that's why these fringes are getting so pop. These populist movements are happening. Um, so, so maybe before I want to ask you more questions about the conversation we had on the plane, cause you blew me away there, but then I want to ask you about this, but maybe just describe really briefly, uh, your, your background. Well, you have, for, you've had so many jobs that I, I, didn't, I can't James, remember. Thanks for, thanks for having me. First, just a couple things. You thought we sat next to each other by mistake, but maybe it wasn't such a mistake, right? If, if I'm such a mega spy as you think, then perhaps it was an intentional bump. Well, it could be because <laughs> our, we, then it turns out we have a mutual connection who's been on this podcast many times, Ryan Holiday. Sure. And Ryan's like, have you should have R.P. Eddie on the podcast. And I'm like, oh my God, that's the guy I sat next to on the plane a year ago. So maybe some things aren't coincidence. Maybe I'm just a pawn in your international spy thriller if only and you know that it's funny because there's something called the passenger effect where you sit next to someone on an airplane and you just tell all these secrets you wouldn't otherwise tell so hopefully i wasn't uh too too indiscreet when we when we sat down well, we're, and, and we're you, after this podcast if you're not arrested then, then you're okay <laughs> well, no. um okay so let's correct a couple of things that we're mentioning here i am not a super spy i'd say ergo might be one of the greatest intelligence firms in the world my firm i founded it about 12 years ago with some great partners and we founded it to work for the u.s government and i'll get to that in a second so my background's pretty simple i was a really really lucky guy i got to study neuroscience and then i got to uh work at um, the u.s government for about 10 years with some extraordinary bosses i got to carry the bags of some great men, including Richard Clark. So my co-author and I 
I, he hired me at the National Security Council. The office was in charge of all kind of terrorism, chemical and biological weapons, disease. It was this mega issue office with about five people in it. This is and, back when the NSC was small. not. And you were in charge of also making sure, kind of filtering and seeing what information would get to the White House. That's what the NSC does, right? So the NSC, at least by its the best definition, is I would say probably about 60 to 100 professional staff members. Each one has one issue area. And your job is to work within the interagency, state, DOD, CIA. FBI, everybody, and make sure the right information gets up to the president and the right decisions come down from the president. So, so as an example, if, and this is what kind of happened with either you or Richard Clark uh, or both of you, uh, you get this feeling in early 2001 that uh, Osama bin Laden is planning something big. You try to communicate that upwards, and then yeah, well, and that's a great point. So when the system doesn't work and no one's listening to you, it's like any other system that doesn't work. So at that point, Dick was, and that you know, look, Dick is a little. Um, he doesn't want to talk about himself being a Cassandra in this book, and if you look through it, he mentions it. We only mention it briefly in the introduction. But Dick is sort of the reason why we're writing this book. Is in my mind, he was he and John O'Neill, who died in nine eleven, and some other people were the great Cassandras of nine eleven. So let's just quickly define a Cassandra before we go too far here, right? So Cassandra from Greek mythology uh, refused to sleep with one of the gods, and Apollo. Apollo. So he said, "Look, you know, no, no good. I'm going to make sure you pay for that." So he first gave her the quote unquote blessing of being able to see the future. She could foretell any future disaster. She could see it in vivid color. But he also said, oh, and guess what? By the way, no one's going to believe you. Now, she happened to live in Troy. Remember, a big horse showed up one day. She kept saying, look, the whole place is going to burn to the ground. This is a big deal. No one believed her. She could foresee everything with great detail. She was fact-based, evidence-based. And she burned to death in Troy like everybody else. So, so let me, let me that's ask you a Cassandra. question. Well, um, just like, this is a stupid question, but if you had a choice, gift of prophecy but no one would believe you or uh, you're a total idiot and everyone's mm. always going to believe you, which would you choose? Well, I think in Cassandra's case, and you see in some of our Cassandras in our book, it's a real cross to bear. It's an unbelievable burden to know with terrific detail and vividness. You know, if you don't put the Fukushima nuclear reactor 20 feet higher or build a higher seawall or put better seals on the doors of the generator, we're going to have a massive nuclear disaster. And this poor guy who's one of the Cassandras we profile in the beginning of the book spends years and years and years trying to get the nuclear regulatory authority in Japan to listen to him because he can see exactly what will happen and no one listens to him. So, so, so I, I want to I wanna follow up on that more, but the book itself is called Warnings because you're, you're, what you're suggesting is that there are things that are going to happen in the future. There are Cassandras right now that nobody potentially is listening to and you're trying to establish these are the things we you should pay it. attention right. to. Right, so this is the big idea. And it, look, I think but, this but, is... But I, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, I'm, to- no. I'm an interrupter. I'm totally sorry to interrupt. But you gave me some advice that I thought was so fascinating. I've quoted you a thousand times. That's why it's such a great coincidence we're, we're sitting across from each other. How do you, when you're talking to somebody, what are three or four things you use to determine if someone's lying? Whether it's an interrogation or just in a relationship or just in a business negotiation, you you had some techniques to determine if someone you were interrogating was lying, but these, these I found these techniques to work in many situations. Well, we've been lucky to get to work with some of the great heads of deception detection and the Polygraph Center and others at CIA who are, um, you know, really studied to the PhD level on what we call deception detection. And, um, a, you know, a couple simple, look, the number one rule, bar none, is make sure you know a question you want to get answered before you start the conversation. What's an example? Um, let's imagine I want to go, I, I'm a stock analyst. 
I'm Meredith Whitney. I'm trying to figure out Citibank in 2007. She's the first chapter in our book, one of the first chapters in our book. And she sits down with the CFO, and there's another analyst there. The other analyst from another large bank says, I'm not, uh, I, I have given up trying to understand your financial Citibank because you're just so great, so big, it's just too complicated. So Meredith says in the book, and it's a fantastic story, that her jaw dropped. She's like, how can you stop trying to figure out the largest company in the world? You are a third-party analyst for a research firms giving buyer-sell recommendations. What's wrong with you? So she knew what she wanted to understand, right? She knew from the get-go, are they solvent? Can they pay their dividend? Where are they going as a company? She had a very clear set of questions. So when she had her interviews and did her modeling, she knew what she needed answered, right? When you started this interview today, you may have had a couple questions you really cared about. This isn't as high stakes as some other things. But when you know what it is you want to have answered, why am I spending my time talking to this person? Then you better make sure that you have a strategy to get that question asked very clearly. That's number one. Number two, make sure that question is answered, right? So as humans, we're, we're, we're herd animals, right? We don't really like to disturb the herd. We don't really like to cause problems with other people next to us. It's a very human emotion to not want to get thrown out of the boat. It's very deep in all of us. So if I'm coming down and I, I, know I want to go long on, on James's company here, but I want to really understand the inner workings and I need to know how much you paid for that microphone. And I know when I go in, here's the third question I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask it very directly and I want to get the right answer. If you're going to defer that answer, not answer that question, I've made a huge mistake. So one, know what you made need to ask. Made a huge mistake. What's the, if I'm not forcing you to answer the question I care about, then I'm not properly doing my interrogation, or, doing my or diligence. Or you're lying. So certainly, then we, now you're starting to get into the questions of how can I, what indications do I have that you are deceiving me? And there's a whole variety, but one of them is you're, you're obfuscating your answers. You're not telling me the answer. If I say, this is a classic one, right? If I say, James, my information is you paid $1,000 for the microphone. That's way too much. And if you come back and, and say, defer, deny, deny, deflect, defer, if you say, um, you know, look, I, I, why, why do you care about the price of my microphone? Or, you know, your microphone looks expensive too. Or, I don't know, let's go, find, let's go find someone else who may understand the microphone pricing issue. I'm not aware of it. All those things are indications of deception. Can, they can do I, not mean you're lying for sure. The whole thing has to be mosaic. So, so I, I want to put it in a relationship context. Let me ask you if you agree or not. Um, uh, if, if, if someone asks in a relationship, oh, where were you last night? And let's say the other person says, oh, I was hanging out with friends. They didn't quite answer your question. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Or, you know, why do you want to know? Or don't you trust me? Or any other situation like that. You know? And you notice this throughout your conversations. Notice, notice this walk, watching different people on the media. You know, if you're, if you're asked a direct question, you probably are going to give a direct answer if you're telling the truth. And so, so, so in, that's in, a good one. In a job context too, like you say, you say to your boss, am I going to get fired uh, in all these layoffs? And if the guy says, well, the company's doing a lot of planning right now. That's also could be either yeah, deception, sure, deflection, and, or And you're going to feel that when you ask that question. Another, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one other idea, one other kind of tip I think is a good one, and it's called sort of uh, truth setting. So as soon as you start that conversation, job interview, something like that, where I'm ultimately trying to get to the answer, a, a, a conversation about earnings for a company, ask a series of questions in the beginning that put the person relatively at ease and also that are just fact-based questions, right? Who's your boss right now? What's your address? Where do you live? How long have you been here? Where do you live? What's your favorite? You probably wouldn't ask what's fair color, but a series of questions that set you sort of a non-alerting basis as you're, as you're being asked. But and that's that, more of a, that's uh, more uh, but, of a, but, but a, let, a parlor game for us. No, no, but, t- but 
But take that to a second level. So then you ask more and more complicated questions, and then you see how they react or what what happens. Because more complicated questions, they might actually have a harder time answering. uh, Absolutely. And one great lesson that that, we learned from some of the terrific trainers who, who, who teach this stuff is just because someone seems really, really nervous in a conversation, just because they're looking around the room, looking left, looking right, picking their hair, looking, taking lint off their jacket, obfuscating answers does not mean they're lying, right? You need to establish a baseline what this person's like. And you also have to understand based on the way you're confronting them, the situation that they're in, a lot of people are going to be very nervous, right? Because remember, we are herd animals. We don't want to get thrown out of the boat. I don't want to ask you a really offensive question and get you upset. And you don't want to be asked an offensive question to get really upset. That's very much part of the human, human, you know, I don't want to say dialectic, human part of the human dialogue. Uh, and, and that's why just, uh, moving a field for a second, there's, you know, you've heard the idea of Crocker's rules, you know, other concepts of how to have conversations. So one of our Cassanders is a guy named Eli Yudkowsky and Eli is a real seer on artificial intelligence. So he's in the second half of the book where we're describing folks who claim and really believe that bad news is coming, but aren't being totally listened to now. Right? So Eli is one of those individuals and, and Eli, like many of our proven Cassandras who said, you know, bad things are going to happen. Please, please, please pay attention. Here's data. Listen to, listen to me. And they were ignored and disaster happened. Second half are these folks who are predicting disaster. One commonality amongst almost all of them is that they have what we call off-putting personalities. Now, Eli- Like Harry Markopoulos, the yes, Madoff guy. Yes, And Meredith I like Harry, Harry very- too. He's from a, city, city. I don't think I don't think Meredith's abrasive. I, she, I think she's not abrasive, a, but I think she was, uh, the media wasn't used to her type of personality. I would put it that way. I think Meredith's a fascinating example um, because, you know, I, she's actually an extraordinarily- um, you know, presentable, kind, gracious, well-mannered person, great conversationalist, and the vitriol that came on onto her for predicting City Lehman and Bear, right? I mean, she got it right three times in a row. Yeah, uh, is stunning. And I and I, I, if that was a man who made those predictions, you would have a very different response that it happened. That well, look, Nouriel Rabini was kind of in that camp and he's Dr. Doom now. Like he was put on a pedestal. Absolutely. And, and another example is Nuri Orbini has been, I mean, I don't know the exact number, but how many, uh, what is the, what's the joke? Nuri Orbini called eight of the last two downturns. Right. You know, he's, 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 he's a very, very smart guy. And I'm not talking about him uh, persona, individually, but there are a lot of folks who get it wrong who don't get the kind of opprobrium that Whitney, Meredith Whitney got after her calls. So, so but I, I want to, I, I Crocker's wanna... rules quickly. Crocker, Crocker's rules is this idea that I'm going to communicate with you as clearly and directly as I can, and I'm not worried about your feelings or mine. And so Eli follows Crocker's rules, right? He's in a rush to get things done. I think Harry probably, I don't think he says, Harry Markopoulos, who called Madoff, I don't think he says, I follow Crocker's rules, but he certainly does when you meet him. And so does Meredith. She's a very direct speaker, particularly when she's doing her, her job. But so different aspects of different people make them people that we, you know, it's a little harder for us to listen to them. Not Meredith, but the other ones have these off-putting personalities. So so, so I, I want to, um, and I, I have so many questions about each of the Cassandras and also about what's what's happening in, in the future. Um, but you had one example where you were interrogating someone, I won't say who, but you, you, you established that baseline. You were also in a chair that didn't have rollers and they were in a chair with rollers and you notice uh, at once. You so this sp- is just an old trick, right? So one great, one great trick, and, and, and a lot of times, um, professional interrogators, of which I was not, am not one, but one who are you know people who are really, really good at interrogation. One great trick is to put you in a 
in a, a boardroom chair on a slick surface with wheels on your chair. And it doesn't matter if I have wheels or not, but I know what I'm doing and you don't know what I'm doing. And the more opportunities I give you to physically remove yourself from me, push yourself back slowly, 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 swivel your chair, more indications I can have of sort of the tension inside of you. And so we don't want to get into the details, but there are, you know, there are stories of, of people interrogating folks and literally... They start at the middle of the boardroom table. It's a picture. It's an oval. By the end of the interrogation, they're all the way at the corner, the far end of the table, because just throughout the hour and a half or whatever it is, the guy just inches back a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And so you feel that's gone beyond the line where obviously there's some, not necessarily deception, but something's going wrong in the conversation. Again, you don't really, you can't, you can't say any one of these things means someone's lying, but the the terrific interrogators, which I am not one, the ones who are you really really good, that, at, but I am sure <laughs> the, that's the not ones true. who are very very good at this, um, you know, will put this all together in the supercomputer above their shoulders in their brain, and they'll figure out, you know, what. I'll tell you what. There's there's a story you and I were talking about. I was in a one of the great interrogators that I've ever met. Um, his name is Barry, and we'll leave it at that. So Barry. I was in a large group meeting and Barry asked a question of all of us where we had to answer sort of the the only appropriate answer was an anodyne yes, right? Otherwise, everyone would have sort of revealed something else. And I just, we all said yes, yes, yes. And just by the virtue, virtue of me just answering yes to that question, he somehow knew that I was being deceptive. Why were you being deceptive there? It wouldn't have been appropriate for me to say no in that group. Because you had some knowledge that you weren't allowed to. It just would have been revealing something I shouldn't have revealed. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, people who are good at this are really, really good at it. And there's not many of them. You told me that story, and you told me that story in the context of. Uh, micro-expressions. Micro yeah, I'm it's, not sure if he used micro-expressions or not. He probably did. But, you know, let's. What are micro-expressions? Microexpressions is more theoretical than proven, but it's the concept that within your face, as you're having a conversation, watching media, doing whatever you're doing, you're betraying a huge amount of your emotionality and thinking by virtue of musculature on your face. Because you know, because these things move faster than your thoughts can control control them. Yeah, and 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 they also probably move faster than my eyes can really perceive, right? So you know, some folks have more placid faces, some people have more animated faces, but throughout a, a conversation, you know, you're going to move your eyes in different directions, your eyelids your eyebrows in different directions, the corners of your mouth. All those things, people theorize, can be deciphered to understand at least someone's truthfulness. Um, I am not a pro at it, but some folks are and really built their careers around micro-expressions. But worth noting, and it's quite interesting, they're experts on, on... voice tenor timber and, and and what your voice sounds like to determine if you're lying or not they literally could listen to this podcast probably and say who's telling the truth or not uh there's experts on on the word choice you use in written documents that are really really talented and they work for insurance companies and when you file your car crash claim and they ask you please write two paragraphs about what happened Experts can look at those paragraphs, not the handwriting, but the words you use, and say, this seems more deceptive. This is more likely deceptive than the other 99 we got this week. That's so fascinating. And uh, again, uh, we're going to get into all this, but you know, it's such an important issue for people to determine if the people around them, whether it's loved ones or employee, fellow employees or bosses or business dealings, it's so important to determine what the real agendas are behind, uh, uh, in the people around you, whether they're lying yeah. or not. What's like some tips people well, can so easily I, do? I would just say the punchline of all of this is other than sociopaths, and they are amongst us, it's a whole other conversation, but other than sociopaths, people, most humans don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to get kicked out of the herd. And when they lie, 
they feel uncomfortable about lying. That's why the guy in the chair moves around the table. That's why people don't answer the question exactly with hard words when they're lying. That's why people's faces start contorting when they're telling lies. That's why people start fidgeting. Now, remember, don't don't put this podcast down and then go talk to somebody and notice they're fidgeting and saying they're lying. It's much more complicated than that. And the people who try to tell you, oh, if they look up to the left, they're lying, and up to the right, and it's true, baloney. It's, it's much more in-depth than that. But remember, we as humans want to stay in the boat. We don't want to upset people, and thereby when we lie, it, it, it's a certain degree uncomfortable for us, and, and those, that uncomfortableness can come out in different ways. So that's what you're looking for is the manifestations of someone being uncomfortable. Sociopaths, uh, don't betray as much or any uncomfortableness with the lying. Because they're kind of, um, they're not in touch necessarily with the side whether they, they are lying or not. Like for No, them- they, they well know they're lying, but they have no, in, they do not care about the feelings of others, right? So they, uh, you know, by definition, a sociopath has no concern about how you feel, the pain you're in, your situation, et cetera. And because of that, they have no problem lying to you. They have no problem charming you. But that's a whole different conversation. So, so there's one other thing I want to, talk about our conversation from the plane and then we'll, 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 and it all segues into warnings. Cause, cause this was really your warning. You were, you were telling me what you were worried about in society. And it's almost like you were being a Cassandra on the plane, but you started to explain to me why income inequality exists in America and uh, how it's not going to get solved so easily. And you were talking about this kind of uh, intergenerational widening that was happening across classes in America. There's a, uh, I think we had a, there's a very large um, link analysis that Ergo put together that describes sort of a number of forces. Ergo being your company. Ergo is the name of our firm, yeah. A number of forces that have led us to Trump being the first of many Trumps. And Sanders being the first of many Sanders, right? So we're now at a point where we have real divisions inside this country based on, largely based on what you would call class or income. And of course, the facts that, you know, 100% of the economic gain of the last 10 or 20 years went only to the top 10% and not to the rest of the country is sort of the manifestation of this reality. And, And you can imagine what that, the impacts are of that reality. And we don't have to imagine, we just saw it in the election for Trump. And we see it now in the popularity of Elizabeth Warren. And we saw in the population of Sanders and others. Right, so populism on the far left, the far right is going to get more and more more popular. Um, so there's a whole series of dynamics that are leading to it, and some of them have to do with with feelings of of being oppressed, feelings of fear and anxiety, and also a number of f- factors inside our society. Others who are who are firing up those feelings of anxiety and trying to make people feel more fear and trying to make people feel more concerned about the future. So the more nervous one is, the more you feel like you're under attack, the more you're concerned about your safety, the more you will um, automatically begin to huddle around, spend time with, and listen to people that are more like you. This is a known sociological fact, right? So Fox News and MSNBC and the other side do a great job getting their bases really riled up with fear. If you go look at Fox News, I had a dear friend who used to work there. She worked for O'Reilly. And they, they literally had a rule that it was something like breasts, bears, and you know hur- hurricanes, right? Like they wanted to lead with stories where they could show breasts. They wanted to lead with stories about bear attacks and et cetera, et cetera. And they loved talking about other tragedies. Stephen Colbert did a nice job making fun of all this. If you watch his, his, uh, his, the way he used to make fun of O'Reilly and the show that he used to do, um, 
but it's it's not funny, right? It's actually people realizing the more I can engender fear, the more I can engender animosity, then the more people are going to listen to me and huddle in close, right? So because fear also is much more motivating than let's say greed or or optimism. Yeah, it's like, fear, it's like 10, 10 fear thoughts match one optimistic I, thought. I think so. I mean, I think it's our most motivating, our most motivating emotion, right? So there's a, a whole number of factors. And if you think about them, um, one that's really worth understanding, I think, is, is the rise or the use of artificial intelligence, right? So we, in the book, talk about what's called artificial general intelligence or super intelligence. This is the stuff of the Terminator movies where the computers are sentient and why they're, they're aware of who they are. They're extremely smart and, and they don't want to be in a computer anymore, right? So that's a different story. But that's, that's super intelligence. On the way to super intelligence, you get ATM machines and Siri and self-driving cars and all these things that are already part of our world. You know, so if you don't think that you're already a part cybernetic organism, if you don't think you're already connected to technology and dependent on it, try to live a few days without your phone, right? I mean, well, you, you have a great example in the book where um, uh, from, the, from the TV show Madam Secretary where uh, at, at you know, at one point Russia does some sort of cyber attack on the U.S. and she says, "Okay, tur- turn off Moscow's power for a day." And uh, uh, this technology is already here. Like these types of things can happen. In fact, this is the big discussion about the recent election. And it's not so much AI that's the scary thing; it's the fact that how dependent we are on the world becoming increasingly connected. Like you give the also the example in the book of. You know, if Nest fails because of a software download, suddenly everyone in the winter is going to be freezing to death. Yeah, and we can't so change it. There's there's um, a, a chapter in here about about the Internet of Things, meaning five billion. There's five billion things now connected to the internet, right? And that number is going up exponentially. So you know, your phones, you're, you're saying your thermostat, your car, uh, your 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 watches, your pacemakers, all these things in different degrees are now connected to the internet or hackable, which are a good thing in general. Sure, there's I a mean, reason they, why they're connected. That's because right. It makes life better and Absolutely. more efficient, and so on. And and but one of our Cassandra is saying, look, this is actually not a good thing. And, and if you, all these 5 billion things that are out there, they don't have built-in firewalls. They, they are not upgradable for security. And so they will become part of uh, uh, hacking tools for malevolent actors. And it turns out, you know, we couldn't write this book fast enough, right? So as soon as we wrote that chapter, one of the last great denial of service or hacks that we saw in this country was based off of baby monitors and Wi-Fi routers and others. So people- What happened? Abs- I don't know the story. By by using, uh, I forgot which hacking collective it was, but they were able to not just use computer to computer to computer as their sort of off-site anonymous uh, beacons to send out viruses. They were able to actually get into baby monitors and people's Wi-Fi routers and others and use those to replicate and pass along different ha- different viruses, right? So now that, and that, that was the last big hack that affected the, the, the United States or the world. And, and this is a real concern. How did it affect things? What, did they, what, what was the bad thing that happened? I think we had um, Gmail go down, Google went down, as I, Google went down. I think we had a lot of cell phone challenges. It was the, I don't have the, the details, it is my fingertips, I'd like to have them, but we had sort of the greatest last uh, attack upon our cyber infrastructure globally was the one I just described. It was empowered in many ways by these Internet of Things computers, not by computers, right? So previous large-scale hacks were, here's a virus, I'm sending it out in the wild, and if you happen to download this or that or go to this website, or a lot of bots on computers on computers would send out a bunch of these infected emails, etc. This hack 
came not from computers that were kidnapped, but came from, as I said, baby monitors and Wi-Fi routers and other things that weren't protected. So, so you stuff, now have stuff totally out of our control, but that we rely on. Exactly. Well, out of our control because we never designed them or built them with the security infrastructure that they probably need. Security Plus, technology. we're not downloading the virus. Like a lot That's of times, right. you know, you, previously you get a Gmail. Oh, check your right. Citibank account, and you click on something and it downloads the yeah, virus. It was now able it has to, nothing to do with us. It took the human failure out of the loop a little bit. That's mm-hmm. right. So, so we do talk about that. We talk about how our reliance on technology, particularly the Internet of Things, is a risk, and that's one of our chapters in the second half of the book where we say, "Hey, someone's beating their feet. They're making a big." noise about this, are they right or wrong? I think history, since we started writing this book, has proven that they're already right. But artificial intelligence, just back to this class division issue, narrow intelligence is already removing a lot of jobs, right? So the if you look at the percentage of jobs in this country where driving is a critical aspect of what you do, I don't mean just bus drivers, truck drivers, and taxi drivers. I mean plumbers who need to drive to go from site to site or lawn care people or tree technicians or whatever it is. Those folks, there's a, there's a huge number of job skills, job categories, where driving is a key component of what you do. All that driving without exception, is going to be replaced by computers in, let's say, 20 to 30 years. There's just no doubt about it, right? So that doesn't mean that the lawn man is no longer going to have a job, but it means a lot of the the labor he's putting in is no longer going to get paid for, right? And it certainly means the, the bus drivers and the truck drivers and the taxi drivers are out of jobs. Now, the same thing happened to, to cashiers at banks when the ATM machine came out. There's a bank near our house where there's one cashier and there's about 15 ATM machines and these new modern ATM machines where I can do even more complicated stuff. But let me play devil's advocate. So when ATM machines came out, everybody was worried, oh, that's the end of bank tellers. But what happened was it actually made it more efficient for banks to build new branches because the cost per branch was lower. So they actually created more branches and there's actually more bank tellers than ever because of increased efficiencies that people, you know, people, this technology doesn't exist just to exist, just for fun, like as an academic project, it exists because people demanded it and it increases efficiency. And with that increased efficiency, businesses are able to grow and hire potentially more people, maybe just in different ways. You're exactly right. And so, so one of the overused and incorrect tropes of this conversation is about the buggy whip manufacturer, right? We've heard this one many times. Yeah. When we moved from horse-drawn buggies to cars, what became of the buggy whip manufacturer? Well, one of the companies that make buggy whips became Studebaker. They made cars and steering wheels, right? So you can transfer the labor force and other things. I didn't know that. You can transfer, you can transfer uh, your, your, your point about bank tellers is a good one. Nonetheless, while there are sometimes good stories like that, and while some of my friends in Silicon Valley say, don't worry, so long as you can give me a good labor force that I can pay less than other things, I'll hire them. At some point, we're not going to need to hire them anymore. And we're already seeing a huge amount of labor being lost because of narrow artificial intelligence or machine learning or some sort of whatever you want to call it, but the use of technology. It is a fact, right? So, so, so combine that, though, with what you were saying to me on the plane, which is that we also have this situation where you know, college-educated people marry college-educated people. Yeah. Uh, non-college-educated people marry non-college-educated people. And so across generations, of right. course, So we have this massive social widening. widening, right? So we have, there was a, there's a, there's a, a survey that was done up and still done, but it was done, um, it's in the 80s, if you asked folks, certainly from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, in the 80s, if you asked people, where do you rank on the income hierarchy, the class hierarchy in the United States? Where do you rank in the class hierarchy in the United States? 80% of people said they were sort of in the middle, right? So 80% of people said, I'm either middle class, lower middle class, or upper middle class. 
upper middle class, meaning a huge number of people deceived themselves about where they were. The, the rich, not the super rich, but sort of the very rich, didn't quite realize they were very rich, and the poor, not the super poor, didn't realize they were super poor. So 80% of America kind of felt like they were in the boat together as far as where they fit in class, right? 10% at the top knew, I'm really rich. 10% at the bottom knew, I'm really poor. But 80% in the middle identified just like the other folks around them, which is you know technically inaccurate, obviously. If you ask people that same question now, how do you rank and decile in the United States as far as your wealth? People are extremely accurate about where they live. They're extremely accurate about how poor or rich they are. Why is that a problem? Because one of the other great human responses is the mimetic response. I want what you have. You can't break yourself from it, right? I want what you have. And now that I'm able to see the way the Kardashians live, it all goes back to Robin Leach and the lifestyles of rich and famous. Do you remember when that show first yeah, came yeah. out? It was just this most fascinating conversation about these really, really rich people out there. And, and most people had no idea, you know, you know, welcome to the house. How about some golf? There's nine holes out the back door. You know, no one really understood that's the way very rich people lived. And I don't think that caused a class revolution, but I think what we're starting to see now through the internet, now through Instagram, now I can watch these people with their hyper-idealized lives that they present to me. I realize I'm not doing as well as they are. And I might be able to realize in gradients how poorly I'm doing. So that's one major issue that's caused and widening, and that is a, a big problem. The other one is the reality of what's actually separating. Back to the point you were referring to from the airplane. When so back to the day in the up until the eighties, it wasn't shocking for the CEO of a major corporation to marry his secretary or to marry someone who was you know nominally of a lower economic standing than him. It would it happened right nowadays, and this is obviously massive generalization, but like the CEO of a venture capital unicorn, venture capital backed unicorn in Silicon Valley, is not going to marry a girl he met driving the Uber. He's going to marry the law firm partner from Sullivan and Cromwell who's taking care of him. You know professionally who went to Yale law, et cetera, et cetera. So the super elite are able to find the super elite in a broader way than they were before and marry and push forward. Obviously there, you know, you're not going to be a managing partner at Sullivan Cromwell and you're the major law firm, nor the head of a unicorn if you're not super high IQ. So they're perpetuating that super high Q strain going forward, high IQ strain. We're on the other end, you know, let's go way, way down to the other end to some poor, either part of the Rust Belt or some poor part of anywhere in the United States where education, go, go to J, J.D. Vance's world in Hillbilly Elegy, right? You're now in a part of the world where people are extraordinarily poor. They're extraordinarily undereducated. They have really, really bad nutrition in some instances and bad healthcare and medical care. And you then, you are perpetuating the future of those poor classes because they're not breaking out and they're continuing to marry where they are. I'm not talking about intermarriage and that whole kind of genetic issue. I'm talking about, you know, people aren't escaping from where they are and some of it's actually genetic, right? Some of it also has to do with, now here's where we get into the future, right? Okay, great. Now what about that the future of genetic engineering and this thing called CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas9, uh, which- Which we talk about in the book. Which we talk about in the book. This is one of the future potential dangers. It's already here, right? So Jennifer Doudna, or Doudna, who's a professor at now in California, previously from Hawaii, discovered a way to manipulate genetic code very, very easily. Now, we knew in the 80s that if we could start moving- 
parts of the strands of your DNA around, we could certainly change the outcomes. We could make bigger cows or bigger fish, or we could maybe someday get rid of genetically born diseases if we could change those parts of the DNA strand. Jennifer Doudna, this unbelievable woman who will almost certainly win the Nobel Prize sometime soon, figured out a really simple and accurate way to do that. Previously, it was all but impossible. It is so simple now that high school students can literally manipulate the gene line of animals, right? So high school students can create glow-in-the-dark goldfish by understanding that this set of, uh, this set of SNPs of DNA creates phospholuminescence. If I can put it into this fish, I can actually get a glow-in-the-dark fish. You can even not just change the expression in one animal. You can change what's called, or human, you can change what's called the germline, right? So we could change the way your genes are so that your, the children you would have in the future would maintain that genetic change. Now, what this really means is in some ways, we are taking on some of the God functions and deciding in real detail what our children will look like or won't look like, sound like, smell like, how tall are they, how small, how smart they are, et cetera. And in fact, this is so already this happening. Great. It sounds great. Tell unless me the bad. There's a lot of bad. So as far from a social perspective, the bad is... Um, that's going to be really expensive. And the ability to, con- the, the expensive function in this equation, the, exp- the expensive part of this equation is actually knowing what genes to cut out and which genes to replace. That data is very expensive. But it'll get cheaper. Sure it will. But right now, people are manipulating genes like this to pick their children. Uh, and China is doing a whole lot more of it than they admit. And they're picking for height. They're picking for intelligence. They're picking for eye color, all sorts of things. You could easily do that in the United States now, except it's not considered ethical. Now you can pick, look, my husband and I both are carriers for Huntington's or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or something like that. There is a very expensive procedure where I can select out the embryos that have those proclivities and end up with healthier children. And I don't think people are complaining about that. But what we do need to start worrying about is when people are selecting to create effectively super children like in the movie Gattaca, remember? Yeah. Uh, This is a real risk. The problem is from the social division side, the people with the money who can afford it are going to do it and thereby they are going to branch out even further and further from the poor people, from poor people, because they're going to be literally have smarter computers in their skulls. They will be smarter. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Audible, thanks for being a sponsor of this podcast. Let me just ask, I'm going to ask the listeners, do you love books but find that you never have time to read them? Because sometimes I don't have time to read them. I'm always doing this podcast. With Audible, you can now get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read on the go. Their app is totally free. It works on the iPhones, iPad, Android, the Windows phone, I don't know if you even if you have like a Sony Walkman, it probably works on that. I don't know though. With Audible, you own your books, so there you download them. It's your book now. Audible also has get this the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title. No questions asked. I'll tell you what I listen to on Audible. Just recently listened to Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl and my favorite collection of of short stories written by a young man named Dennis Johnson called Jesus' Son. And I've listened to my own book on Audible, Choose Yourself. Go to audible.com slash James. I like that they have their own little slash James there because I love Audible so much. 
Go to audible.com slash James to start now. Are you hiring? Because if you are, God bless you. There are so many people out there who need jobs, so I'm glad you're hiring. But you still want to hire the best possible candidates for the job you're hiring for. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 or more job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. I never even knew how to do that before, and now I can do it. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. And if you run into any issues, don't fret. ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. Right now, you guys and gals can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Please just try it. Even if you're just hiring like one person, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. You get it for free. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let's go head first into the book. First off, um, cause I want, cause you're being a Cassandra on this issue and I want to, I want to confront that, but let's just talk about the qualities of like a, Mer- a Meredith Whitney, a, um, Harry Markopoulos, uh, or Marco Polis. I don't know how you say his last name. Uh, and some of these other ones, you know, so many people complain about bad things like, you know, the whole population bomb issue, which never right. really That's occurred. That's a great example. And how do we know who to listen to and who not to after in hindsight, which is the first, the first half of your book is in hindsight, where we see who who was not li- who was correct, but they were not listened to, and they were not listened to for a reason. And you point out those reasons very well. How can we learn to listen to the right people? So you mentioned Paul Ehrlich, who suggested in this book called "The Population Bomb," uh, I think in 1968, that geez, there's just going to be way, way too many humans given the amount of food we can produce. We're going to have a massive, massive problem. It was like a Malthusian prediction about the future of humanity. And it was taken very seriously. And there was very smart people talking about putting sterilizers into water. There was very smart people talking about implementing one-child policies in the United States like they have in China. Well, and by the way, all of this is related to what you were saying earlier, this kind of eugenics idea that we can sort of pick and choose what qualities we want, and that's who will live. Sure. Uh, and, and what Ehrlich was saying, we don't even need to pick and choose. We just need less humans, and let's just do it across the board, because if we don't have less humans, we're going to have a real catastrophe on our hands. So Ehrlich went out and made a lot of noise about this. Best-selling book, listened to congressional testimonies and hearings, like a big deal. Turns out he was totally wrong, right? He didn't realize that agricultural technological revolutions or innovations were going to allow us to feed everybody. Or right? was he right, and the agricultural revolutions is the response? He can't, well, that's, that's also, that's a really good point. Sometimes someone who warns of a disaster is proven to be correct because the response happens, but you never actually know they did it. No, I don't think in this instance he was correct and and caused the positive response. Others have in different instances, but I don't think he did. Nathan Borlaug was the guy who invented dwarf wheat, is probably the person who, you know, I think he also did win a Nobel Peace Prize. He discovered how to grow wheat with a much, much higher efficiency, much less waste. And, and that was a big part of why we were able to feed people. And his innovations were underway well before Ehrlich wrote his book. So okay. you can actually fact-based say that's not what happened. So anyway, 
So you have, you have a, that's an example of a person who I would call chicken little, right? The sky's going to fall, the sky's going to fall, it never did, he was wrong, okay? Our Cassandras in the first half of the book were right, as you mentioned. And what and, makes them different from a Paul Ehrlich? So it turns out, look, the, the primary issue is that they're data-driven, right? Paul Ehrlich was not an expert on population. He wasn't. He did not have the proper training to have, we would not have considered him serious using what we call the Cassandra coefficient. So the middle of our book is a really, really fascinating, in my mind, a really fascinating chapter that talks a lot, really talks about our human biases. It talks about how are we getting it wrong not to listen to these people? Why are we ignoring folks who come to us with really clear explanations of what's happening? And it turns out there's a series of characteristics around the Cassandra which we'll describe. But it's not just the Cassandra, it's the context in which they come to you that also needs to be understood. So there's four major components that in, that we think are worth looking at. One is the Cassandra and the characteristics therein. There's characteristics of the warning itself. What are they complaining about? What are they worried about? There's characteristics of the decision makers, the folks who are supposed to solve these things. And there's characteristics of the critics, the folks who are saying, no, no, the Cassandra's wrong. And we have described 24 characteristics across all those four components. So, so it's four components, 24 total. And when you look at each one of those things, we believe we can, we're beginning to understand the outlines of how to identify a Cassandra from a Chicken Little. So let's talk about the characteristics of a Cassandra. I mentioned data-driven. Everybody in our book that was right was a proven technical expert on the topic they were speaking about. This isn't... And almost know, by definition, they're going to be more of an expert than the people they're talking to. That's why they have the knowledge and the people they're talking to, the potential critics don't have the knowledge. That is a great point. So you start ending up having trouble where you're talking to, Harry Markopoulos is a great example. So Harry Markopoulos very, very clearly said, Harry said Madoff is a, is a scandal. Madoff is a Ponzi scheme. Harry Markopoulos tells me he knew within 45 seconds of understanding the quote-unquote hedge fund that Madoff was running that it was a Ponzi scheme. He smelled it right away. He knew the whole thing, exactly what was wrong, right? So, so let me ask you a question about that. Like, again, you mentioned he has, had a somewhat abrasive well, let, personality. Let me, let me just mention this. Yeah. I want to get back to your good point, right? So, so Harry is a, he does have a semi-abrasive personality, but more critically, he's a real numbers wonk, right? He's a certified fraud examiner. He's a CPA. He's a financial analyst. He understands numbers. He's comfortable and happy with numbers. So he goes to the SEC, who's they're the decision maker. It's their job to oversee Madoff. And he says, in excruciating and clear and in arguable detail, Madoff is a fraud, period. Madoff is a Ponzi scheme, period. And he's right. ignored because they don't speak the language he speaks. But it was so inarguable. I'll tell you the, like, like, I don't necessarily know everything either, but there was one argument that he made that was so inarguable as to seem ludicrous that nobody listened to it, yes. which is that to trade yes. $60 billion worth of options, there wasn't even that many options traded in the market. You got who it. could argue with that? You, the, the SEC lawyers who found Harry to be off-putting, they found him to be obnoxious, they thought that he was a competitor of Madoff, so they began to doubt his veracity and his motivations. And these were kind of liberal arts law student, you know, law lawyers, right? And Harry came in with complex mathematical equations. You're exactly right, James. That was, to me, the one that was like, there's no way Madoff is telling the truth because there's not enough options sold in the entire world every day to support a split-strike conversion process inside his hedge fund. Like, it cannot be true. Look at the facts. But like, when the, Madoff had like a $10 million fund or a $100 million fund, maybe it would have been harder sure. to say, make that argument. Even a couple billion, but, but not $65 like, billion. Right. So there was no possible way that he could be doing what he was doing. And the SEC, we call, so we call that complexity mismatch. 
So when you have, and look, and we're entering a world of increasing complexity. The acceleration of complexity is a whole different issue, but it's a massive problem. So when you're the bureaucrat at the SEC, I don't care how well-intentioned you are, but someone shows up who has an off-putting personality, you have a complexity mismatch because you don't understand the math, you don't understand what it means to be a fraud examiner or a CPA, and they're giving you mathematical theory you don't get, or you have what we call uh, ideological response rejection. Like you're just not going to believe it because it doesn't fit in your ideology. You're going to push this guy away. So a whole series of biases bi- built into who we are makes them ignore this perfectly accurate Cassandra. So the Cassandra coefficient, the things about them, proven, proven technical expert, as I mentioned, often have an off-putting personality, not all of them. Data-driven, they think differently, they're orthogonal thinkers, uh, they're questioners by personality, they're asking the hard questions, they're the ones who doubt. They have a sense of personal responsibility, meaning when they walk into a restaurant uh, they're, they, and, and the fire alarm goes off, they're the guy who's going to say to everybody, let's get out of here. Let's go. Don't sit there and finish your dessert. They have a sense of personal responsibility. You know, There's all these different theories, but some people think of themselves as sheepdogs, and some people think of themselves as sheep, but I don't realize they're sheep, and then we all know there's wolves out there, right? So wolves, sheep, and sheepdogs, these guys think of themselves as sheepdogs. They, to some extent, think it's their job to protect all of us. That's another characteristic. And finally, they have what we call high anxiety, right? So not only, let's go back to our restaurant, the fire alarm. When they walk in, these are the guys who look for the fire exits. Where are the fire exits? And these are the guys, when they smell smoke, pull the fire alarm. And if you think about personalities, a lot of people don't do that, right? right? So this is a little bit of a different cast of folks. These Cassanders are a little different. So there's aspects about them that we think are really different and definable. And Th- then the Paul Ehrlichs. Th- exactly. Paul Ehrlich was not a proven technical expert. He was not data-driven. I don't know about the rest of it, but you know, we would have right off the bat said, no, he doesn't deserve to get this much attention and response because he doesn't have the data. He doesn't. Every one of our Cassandras, including every one of our potential future Cassandras, is an expert in their field for years and years and years. And I'll tell you, though, it's so hard on the other side you know, I think you have to. I think everybody should be made aware of the Cassandra coefficients. What makes a good Cassandra? Because I'll tell you, I intersected with a few stories in here. I visited Bernie Madoff when he was at the peak of his hedge wow. fund. I you don't mention John Paulson, but obviously John Paulson's fund yep. was a big Cassandra of the financial sure. crisis of two thousand eight. I rejected investing in his fund despite all the data being thrown in front of me. So I was kind of the idiot on the other side <laughs> of many of these situations. So this book helps me with not, not only understanding what my behavior was, but how my behavior could change in the future. But let's, uh, people should read your case studies and your stories. You have 9-11, which you were intimately involved with. You have all the financial stuff. You have uh, the swine flu stuff, all these different things. But what are you now personally worried about for the future? The book's called Warnings. What are your warnings? Who are the Cassandras? Why do you believe them? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm worried about a lot of things, so I hate to say, but the one, so writing this book, the, the final seven chapters talk about, uh, again, as I mentioned, people who are stomping their feet, beating the table and saying, listen to me, listen to me, bad news is coming, dragons be there. And, you and know, that's right the now, job, that's how they make money, is by expressing fear. You see it on uh, every ad sure. in, in the internet, like the end of the world's coming, buy this report, why? Yeah, well, you know, that's true, and there are a lot of people out there that are 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 and we talked about this in the beginning, that are trying to make hay out of warnings, out of, of trying to panic us. I think the, the seven people we profile in the end of the book that are trying to get our attention, I don't think a single one of them is profiting off their warnings. Uh, and, and just very 
briefly, we talk about the rise of artificial intelligence in the, in the robots, right? So this is the stuff from the Terminator movies. We talk about how the rise of pandemic disease is never more of a risk than it is today. How the flu of 1919, which uh, killed a massive amount of the world with only 2% lethality, um, you know, could look like a walk in the park compared to what Lori Garrett tells us is coming. And how do we disease. avoid that? Because I think people are aware that a pandemic can happen, which is why the, the, the WHO always issues pandemic warning as sure. like three people die and then there's a pandemic warning. Yeah. warning. Well, that's what people think. But you know, how do we avoid that is um, Lori Garrett, who is truly one of, uh, you know, I don't think she ever will. But if anyone out there is listening who can who work on this, Lori Garrett should win a Nobel Prize for a Nobel Peace Prize. Lori Garrett's won the Pulitzer, the Polk, and the Peabody. Only person ever to win all three. She's the head of global health at the Council of Foreign Relations. She may be a two-time Cassandra, one of the few. She foresaw the rise of HIV/AIDS when she was a radio reporter in San Francisco and would walk out into the the gay district. Was it called Tenderloin? I don't remember. And she would see these men dying of a disease they called gay-related immune deficiency. Grid or, or gay cancer. They didn't know what it was. And the gay men didn't think that they had a transmissible disease. They thought they were sharing a cancer somehow. But just by looking at them and watching the Kaposi sarcoma on their face and seeing them, Lori Garrett knew this was a, con- a contagious illness and started getting the media to pay attention to it. And remember, this is during the era of, era of Ryan White. Ryan White, you may recall, was a young, poor high school student dying of HIV from a blood transfusion. And his local high school wouldn't let him come to school. People shot bullets at his house. Mm. And noted politicians called for gay people being put in camps. People were so afraid of this disease. Anyway, she talks about what we need to do to get ready for a pandemic. And it's just simple, systematic expenditures for healthcare infrastructure and surveillance networks. That's what she talks about. But let me, I'm, I, I kind of didn't answer your question. I'm sorry. What am I most concerned about? Certainly that. I think the rise of pandemic diseases are an unbelievable issue. I'm really, really concerned about the rise of superintelligence. And um, I join, uh, in this instance, I join a very, very impressive crowd of Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, Bill Joy, a number of people that we believe, and I think there's evidence to say, are the great technological thinkers of our, our era, are all very concerned about the rise of superintelligence. What's the switch that will flip? That I mean, it's not like artificial intelligence can be conflated to evil human intelligence, which I think is kind of the, the Terminator worry. What, what's the switch that will flip that makes you actually worried? It's a really, really long and hard, complicated conversation made more complicated by the reality that when when we try to think about a machine, an entity that's twice as smart, 10 times as smart, or a thousand times smart as smart as the smartest human, by definition, our brains can't do that. Right. But, but they'll be, they're not, it's not like human intelligence times 10. It's a different type of intelligence. You can, you can get yourself worked in all sorts of knots trying to figure out what does smart mean, what does intelligence mean. But let's just suffice it to say we're talking about a thing that's able to solve the hardest mathematical and physical challenges of mankind. Questions that, you know, there's a whole litany of questions that physicists and mathematicians have been trying to solve for, in some instances, centuries, right? And, and geneticists and biologists and others and energy experts. There's a whole series of questions they've been working on. When we get to artificial intelligence at the superintelligence level, this is very different than the ATM machine and Siri and the self-driving right. car. This is a machine that is as smart as a human or more. And again, now we, you know, what does smart mean? But let's skip that for a second. You now have a machine that's going to be able to answer all those major known questions. Plus, it'll be able to ask questions we don't even know. 
right? So the degree of intelligence that we're describing here is impossible for us to really get our arms around. It's a big, big issue. So what's the flip of the switch? I don't know. I mean, I, I think what we're talking about is when a machine gets so extraordinarily smart that it has a certain amount of self-awareness or sentience, and then it's concerned about survival, right? And you might say, and this was someone said to me the other day, oh, well, but when will a machine have an original thought? And the answer is they already have had many original thoughts. Right, so, that's, why, that's why I don't, I mean, Google every day has original thoughts. So that's why I don't like conflating Google, which knows many more facts than me and does many things relating to AI, it's not my kind of intelligence. Like, it's a different kind of intelligence. Exactly. So right now, um, I think just about anything a human can do, including throw a ball or catch a ball or certainly play go chess or backgammon or run a race or drive a car, anything a human can do, a computer can do better. Now, not one computer can do all those things better, but individual computers can do all those things better. Right, and it's improving fast. I mean, you could see the examples of facial recognition. Ten years ago, you couldn't do it. Now I could be, I don't know, wearing a hat in, in a crowd in Times Square, and a satellite could say, hey, there's James Altucher. Absolutely. It's, it, you know, the, the acceleration of complexity, the acceleration of technology is unlike anything we've ever seen before. And certainly that's manifest in artificial intelligence. So, so your question is, why should we be afraid? What's the big issue here? Here's just one way I can sort of describe it. First of all, humans are not the fastest nor strongest organisms on the earth, but we clearly dominate the earth to the point where we're destroying the earth. When another organism is much fat, again, we rule because we're smart, right? When another thing comes up that's smarter than us, we should be concerned about what it could do. Just, just that simply. I mean, and you might say that's, um, you know, that's just paranoid thinking. I don't, I don't think it is. Now, here's, here's um, one way to think about it. The last time you dug a hole, built a house, built a pool, you know, drove your car on the sand, whatever it was, you may well have killed some ants or some worms or this or that. I don't imagine you went to bed that night crying about it. I don't think you're out there hunting them. I don't think you're the kid with the magnifying glass burning ants. But I think in your, you know, in doing what you needed to do, if you ran over some of these things, that just was what it was, a necessary cost that you didn't think twice about. When... It is not impossible to think, and this is a big thing to get, and you're, people, you're not going to believe this, but it's, it's, you might, but a lot of people aren't going to. It is not impossible to think that a self-recursive, a self-programming computer will be so much smarter than us that it'll be the same as, as smart as we are versus an ant, right? So the difference between us and an ant or us and a dog is easily how much smarter a super intelligent computer could be versus us. So we don't really necessarily know. We don't know. It's not going to hunt us, I don't think. We don't know. But what we also don't know is that we're not preparing for that. And we do definitely know that super intelligence is coming. Computers obviously get yeah. d- double the speed, yeah. double the fast, yeah. smart yeah. Yeah. every year. Yeah. And that's been, that's been one of the first, you know, there's uh, Eli Yudkowsky, who's the Cassandra we talk about in this chapter, who's really a fascinating guy and also has an off-putting personality. And he's a guy who is behind the, you know, he's the guy who taught me about the Crocker rules for conversation, which I didn't finish on you know, when we did. He's a guy, who who describes there's a series of stops on a train where people get off if they to not believe you right when he says look we need to really worry about the rise of superintelligence and ultimately robots and sort of terminator type outcomes he says there's a series of exits where people get off the train and one of them is well, it just won't ever happen technology won't get there well that stop is you know the doors don't open anymore right, right. you're technology not getting it's definitely happening we will definitely have super intelligence definitely by the end of this century almost i mean that that's a given now will it be in 20 years or 30 years that's a question will it be in 100 years absolutely 
right? So it's going to happen. Then the question is, can we begin at some point programming it, building it in such a way that we can be comfortable about it? Can we be safe with it? Um, Look, the other way to think about it is we're building the greatest weapon in the history of mankind, right? Now, it's also the greatest tool for good. It will solve the molecular sorting issue. It will end all energy challenges. It will end all food hunger and starvation challenges. It will end all disease issues. It could end death. Now we're talking about Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb again, right? You know, if we have no death. But this machine will be able to answer all those questions. So that's an extraordinarily good thing. It will, it will be so, it will confer so much power on the person that, or the organization that can control it, that we're never going to stop trying to build it. So potentially, too, that organization is the problem. Like, we, we, you can be a Cassandra saying that organization is, we're not going to have a decentralized command. We're going to have a very centralized command, which is that organization that controls all the superintelligence. Yeah, no, look, we, we are, if if humans or an organization are end up being able to control this thing, you're exactly right. We're going to have that problem. Uh, and if not, if it controls itself, then we don't have to worry about it. We're going to have a much bigger problem. So, so what what other things do you worry about? So that's one I really think about is is uh, the rise of the machines. And it scared me so much that I, I told my little kids about it. Got them scared. They went to school and told their their buddies about it. We had parents oh, you're calling such home. A joyful parent. <laughs> I know, but it was you're the life of the party at the PTA. A, the first X Y graph my seven year old ever drew was about the rise of hyper intelligent beings. So you know, I still have it on a napkin. Um, I, I think that's a real issue. I think pandemic disease is um, a real problem, particularly and, combined with. Uh, what you were describing with the CRISPR, if we can edit, if we can uh, genetically edit uh, a flu, a swine yeah, flu, sure. we can edit it so it so things like Tamiflu won't cure. Absolutely, and Tamiflu already doesn't work. But we so nature already cr- creates all sorts of defense mechanisms against antibiotics, antivirals. We know that, right? For for antibiotic resistant, antiviral resistant pand- uh, 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 viruses and bacteria, we know that already happens in nature. What you're talking about is a real issue, uh, and that's about um, using CRISPR, this really fantastic genetic manipulation tool, to create highly lethal biological weapons. Which is so, only going to get cheaper and cheaper and easier sure. and easier. It's uh, CRISPR not like couldn't weapons. be any cheaper, right? right. It's uh, not like nuclear weapons where like Iran, Iran needs particular type of plutonium that's been processed to precisely, be put in nuclear right. weapons. Precisely. This, anybody, like you said, a high school student can get this and start getting to work. You got it, right? So we're, we're now talking about a situation where uh, for very few dollars and certainly on a state-level effort, as you're describing, it requires a state-level effort to um, to create nuclear weapons for very few dollars, someone could create a highly lethal biological weapon, and and that's a real concern. And look, that's I, I can guarantee you, sometime in the next fifteen years, some bad dudes are going to try to use CRISPR to create a highly lethal, highly contagious bug. It, there's no doubt in my mind. Why? Because bad dudes have been trying to do that already, right? You, you read in the book about um, the, the, the Japanese, Japanese cult. the Japanese cult called um, Om Shinriko, thanks, and how they worked really, really hard to try to find smallpox and how to create sarin and other chemical and biological weapons. Um, that's a real problem. I, I'm really concerned about that as a risk. And um, I, I think I, I'd say those are the ones. Now, here's one that's really current and really interesting. Um, we could talk about North Korea and talk about what's going on there, but suffice it to say that we are now, Donald Trump or not, we're now in a situation where things between North Korea and the United States are, are at a, a jam. And there's, there's no president 
ever who could allow North Korea to have a nuclear weapon and a delivery device, a missile capable of getting to the United States. We cannot allow that to happen. No president could allow it to happen. Bernie Sanders couldn't allow it to happen. So we, but, but North Korea is now getting there. So as that's happening, the possibility of them using nuclear weapons on us or certainly on South Korea or Japan becomes much more possible. And then our responsibility to respond becomes much more possible. Now, what I'm talking about is the possible of an, possibility of an exchange of nuclear weapons in the Korean Peninsula or towards California. Like This is now in the realm of the possible. It's in the realm of the quite possible. Um, and again, I'm not saying anything about Trump. I'm saying this is where we find ourselves in the national security kind of arc of time. Right? There's a, 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 a madman regime possibly with a weapon, and we possibly have to respond. In the book, we talk about uh, the, the nuclear ice age. Do you recall growing up in the 80s this idea that if there was an exchange between Russia and the United States that the yeah, whole the world would winter. go into a nuclear winter? Exactly. And that fear of a nuclear winter actually led to a lot of the arms control work uh, that was so successful in the 70s, 80s, and 90s between the Soviets and the United States because nuclear winter was real. Everyone understood it. If there was a, a nuclear exchange between the United States and the Russians, the entire con- world would go into a, not a freeze, but a, a deep, hard winter for decades. And you mention in this book uh, how the data actually might be worse than was originally understood. Exactly. That and just basically a small exchange of nuclear you weapons could put soot throughout the air and right. create this nuclear winter. Right. So so the, the, the guy we profile in that chapter talks about India-Pakistan. He does the studies right. on what if India-Pakistan throws some nukes back and forth at each other. And he says the world could be in a nuclear winter for two to three years or a decade. Like big, catastrophic change. I'm not saying you get to ski for a year all year round for 10 years. I'm saying billions of people die because crops don't grow, the sun doesn't shine, uh, water doesn't flow. This is a, cat, a catastrophe of the highest order. Turns out, obviously, if it's an if India-Pakistan nuclear exchange could cause this, so could an exchange around the North Korean Peninsula. So here's a warning, right? Not only might we be in real, real trouble with North Korea right now, and might there be, what did, what did Donald Trump say the other day? There's a major, major chance of us going to war with them. Well, not only is there a major, major chance of us going to war with them, there is a real chance of be, there being a nuclear exchange. And if there is a nuclear exchange, the science says pretty incontrovertibly, we could end up in a nuclear winter. And you know, there's so much fascinating in that chapter. Worldwide. Because you talk also about how tactical nuclear weapons, which seem like almost a friendlier way to exchange nuclear weapons, are in fact worse because they make it psychologically capable of us to say, oh, we could rationalize. It's only a tactical nuclear weapon, not like a big you know, H-bomb or whatever. So tactical, you're exactly right. So part of the good news about us getting rid of tactical nuclear weapons, and you know, we used to have a weapon called the Davy Crockett, and it was a hand, it was a shoulder-fired bazooka with a nuclear warhead on it. Can you imagine that? One soldier with a bazooka could launch a nuclear weapon and destroy downtown Manhattan. Right? That's crazy. So we don't have those weapons anymore, thank goodness, and the Soviets don't either because of our arms control treaties. And now right now, those weapons might actually make some sense. But yes, there's a psychological reason not to have them because it would make a president like Trump or others say, hey, this isn't so bad, let's use it. Now, what we do have is the B-61 warhead. Uh, B-61, that, the B-61 missile, effectively, is, is our, our number one part of our nu- nuclear arsenal. We have basically two warheads, the W-88 and the B-61. The B-61 is a, is a uh, variable yield weapon. It has a dial on it, and you can dial it down to weaker than Hiroshima, or you can dial it up to, I think, 300 megatons. 
which is you know 100 times more than Hiroshima, or much more than that. So you could use the B61, That's put scary. it on low yield, and drop a bunch of them around the DMZ to prevent South Korea from using their 15,000 artillery pieces and destroying, or I don't know if they could destroy Seoul, but some say the North Korean 15,000-strong artillery barrage would turn Seoul into, quote-unquote, a sea of fire. 10 million people plus 10 million people in Seoul, 10 million in the city, 10 million in the, in the suburbs. That's a bad thing. So you could use a B-61 variable yield weapon or a series of them to denude or the, the North Korean capacity to shoot on Seoul. You've now got a nuclear exchange. You've now got the capacity for a nuclear winter. These are bad, bad things. I promise you this conversation has not been had in the White House. So, so you know, it's so scary because... So, okay, I just want to repeat. The book's called Warnings, Finding Cassandras to Stop Catastrophes. It's by Richard A. Clark and R.P. Eddy. I've read it. On the one hand, it was very gratifying because it helps to understand uh, what the Cassandras were for prior disasters. And it's really interesting to see, I'll read also about 9-11 and some of the other issues we didn't talk about. But it's also interesting to see the things you're scared about now. I mean, here's my, my final question about this. Given that there are a lot of very realistic things to be scared about, the odds of one of them happening, and these are all worldwide catastrophes, the odds of at least, and they're all kind of mutually exclusive to each other, the odds of at least one happening is pretty high. Like, how do you, how do you live with the knowledge? Well, we have catastrophes. And, and by the way, people that, should read about this just to be aware of what's, what's happening. Yeah, and, and also just noting quickly, it's actually a, <laughs> it's a good news book, right? Because it talks about how we can identify these Cassandras and we can get ahead of these catastrophes. So look, we have catastrophes, mega, mega catastrophes hit us about every three, five years. Fukushima, 9-11, 9, all the things that happen. Well, that, that's coming in the future. And of course, asteroids have happened before. This, yeah. isn't, this isn't a never happened before scenario. So yes, I think unfortunately some of these things will come to pass. But the more we're aware of how to find the people out there who predict them, the more likely we'll be able to prepare for them or even prevent them entirely. Every major catastrophe from your lifetime or mine had a person waving their hand saying, this will happen, right? And they had data and we ignored them. We have to not ignore them anymore. But I want, do I have one more, one yeah, more yeah. minute? I forgot to mention something to you beforehand and I want to mention it to you now. So look, this is a book. It'll get read by a few people. Great. Maybe some of the ideas will get out there. Great. Maybe a couple managers or a president or a cabinet member might say, geez, I shouldn't kick that guy out of my office so quickly. I remember reading an article about off-putting personalities or complexity overload or why I should listen to a Cassandra. If that happens, Dick and I couldn't be happier. But it's just one book, right? As many people are going to listen to your podcast, I know a lot do, what we need to do is get the word out a lot further, James. So what we're doing, Dick and I, joined by General Hayden, former head of NSA and CIA, joined by Ambassador Frank Wisner, the highest ranking diplomat in American history, joined by Dave Cohen, the former head of ops for CIA, joined by Mark Gerson, who I think you know, one of the great entrepreneurs of America in the last decade and great philanthropists, and a number of others are creating something called the Cassandra Award. So we're creating a uh, a website for an open submissions globally. We want people to go into that website and submit to us the ideas of people out there who are being ignored, data-driven experts, who, and look at the book about what it, we think an expert means, people out there who are warning of something and aren't getting the attention that you think they deserve to get. So go to our website, and we can maybe put it on your podcast. We can put the link down. Yeah. And, uh, and, and submit the name of that Cassandra. And then the people I mentioned and some others are going to be a, a group of distinguished 
a board to judge these different submissions. And every year, we're going to announce an award on a person who we think deserves more attention because we think that the catastrophe that they're predicting is a possibility. We think they're data-driven. We think they're experts. And we want the world to pay more attention. And and, and we're going to th- give them a cash award as well. Do you think that cash award will be listened to by a Trump or... I what what I want to do is first of all it has to be absolutely nonpartisan. But I want to create as much news and media as possible around it, so that yes, hopefully it is listened why to. You, why don't you do Trump. like an X Prize type thing where you raise ten million for you know these types of? Awards? I would love to raise a substantial amount of money uh, to get that out there. But I think you know even if we can give the Cassandra ten or twenty thousand dollars, I think that's a really good st- step in the right direction. What we really want to bring them is um, is 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 uh, public publicity. We want people to pay attention and say, oh, you know, I never realized that we're losing bumblebees to the extent we say we are. That, that story's already been kind of been told. But things like that. Look, we have seven future Cassandras already published in this book. We have seven that were ignored. Unfortunately, there's one right now, if not 10, that are right. And we got to find them. We've got to listen to them. So the annual Cassandra Award. And James, if you'd like to be, I'd love for you to be one of the judges for the award with us. You have I'd, great I'd experience and, and a lot like of exposure. To help. You've scared the hell out of me. So I want to <laughs> <laughs> I want to help, and I'm a natural optimist, so it's good for me to to consider the other side of of all of these great technologies and so on. But RP from from our conversation on on JetBlue a year ago to your book uh, Warnings: Finding Cassandras to Stop Catastrophes that you that you wrote with Dick Clark, uh, just fascinating stuff. I always learn. I hope people read this. This the stories are great. It's not just data driven stories. Like you tell the real stories of these people and 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 of the warnings coming up and and how you hope to deal with them. I really encourage people to read this book. It's 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 kind of important. It's not just your average book. So and I think it's a good fun read. Buy it for your dad for the beach. He might be yeah. crying by the end of the day, but he'll learn something. And was, thanks for having us, James. Crying. I I love your I love the work you do, and I think you're one of the great one of the great commentators and thinkers. So I, it's a privilege for me to be here. Thank you. Thanks, RP. Uh, go to warningsbook.net and check the annual class. Cassandra. Was, uh, oh, sorry. Check the <laughs> annual Cassandra Award, and that's how you can find out more about how to win the cash prizes and express your own Cassandras and read about others. So thanks very much, RP. Thanks. RP, thanks so much. This I, was fun. I know we uh, spoke a lot about the JetBlue conversation, but I think it segued nicely into your yeah. own expertise. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Listen, I have a favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and please, it would mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going to either iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. It'll probably be the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. For instance, go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Like I said, it will take 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will help me a huge amount. Thanks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.